You said that on your website, you live a Georgic lifestyle. What is the difference between that and agrarianism? Agrarian and Georgic are about the same. Georgic is much older. Georgic comes from uh, Virgil, who wrote a series of poems called the Georgics about 35 um, uh, uh, BC, um, which is much older than the term agrarian. So agrarian is uh, kind of the, the, it went Georgics agrarian to industrial farming, right? Um, yeah. But Georgics, Georgics is much more than growing food. Georgic comes from, uh, it's a Greek and Roman tradition. And, and, and all the writings they have, I probably have 30 books on this. Um, what, what the Romans, the Greeks and the Romans, specifically the Romans, but the Greeks mentioned it as well, people who farm, people who, now, now you got to think, this is before the Greek, in, you know, empire or the Roman empire. This is when the Greeks first started out. They're a bunch of goat herders, right? Um, yes. Five families in a valley somewhere. And what they figured out was um, people who grow their own food, people who, who do this agrarian or Georgic lifestyle um, have a bunch of other qualities. They're self-sufficient, they're independent, um, they take care of themselves, they don't look to other people to take care of them, um, they, can, they can engage in their own defense, they're creative. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. People who are Georgic have all these qualities. People who are urban, now you can be urban and still somewhat Georgic. There are plenty of people who grow food on rooftops in cities. Um, oh. or in, in a, you know, abandoned lots and that kind of thing. And because of what they're doing, they're still very Georgia. Kansas City has a big group there of people who've gone in, bought homes in these horrible inner city areas for a dollar a house, tore the houses, fixed them up or tore them down, have huge farms and, uh, you know, aquaponics and all kinds of stuff going on, producing all their own food. You still develop those same skills in that environment, but it's a very Georgic mentality uh, where agrarian is, is agriculture, but it's not necessarily, it's really starting to go into the industrial side of all this, which is very not Georgic uh, because it's all dependent on the big uh, uh, chemical companies and on subsidies from, from government and all these things. And, and Georgics is not, Georgics is, is being independent um, oh. yourself or with a small community. So would you consider then, because this, I think this is an important topic here, would you consider people in the 1800s more Georgics? Because I keep hearing, oh, well, so-and-so lived in a gray and lifestyle in the 1800s, particularly the pioneers. And I'm not just talking about the Latter-day Saint pioneers, pioneers in general that went from the East to the West. Would you consider those people, even when they were living on the East Coast, Georgics instead of Aquarianists? Yeah, yeah. I mean, even as late as 1850s, people who lived in New York City, in a in a city lot, um, still had a, a third to a half an acre where they had a cow and they had chickens and they had their own vegetable gardens and produced about 50% of their own food, even as late as the 1850s. So that's very Georgic compared to what they do now. They go to the corner store and if the store doesn't have it, they're out of luck. Um, that's not Georgic. So if I was a farmer, just a modern day farmer, and using chemicals and relying on the government for my wheat subsidies and those type of things, I would be an agrarianist. Well, I'm not even sure you'd be an agrarianist. You'd be a industrial uh, farmer or rancher. Um, 
to, to, to the extent, for example, we have farmers here, they call themselves farmers um, and they do grow things, but they don't eat what they grow. They're not, they're not independent. They still go to the grocery store for every bit of food they eat. They live in town. Um, that's not Georgic. That's not even agrarian. That's industrial farming. Um, agrarian would, would, you could probably, you know, uh, um, little house on a prairie would be agrarian or Georgic. Um, hmm. You know, farmer boy, um, those kinds of stories laddie those kinds of stories which are novels but they're based on people's real life experiences um those are uh accounts of when we were georgic moving into agrarian but still very independent they they made their own wines they they made their own preserves they grew all their own food they grew their own grains they had their own harv their own straw harvest and and hay harvest they butchered their own animals they had all these things um, that were part of the Georgic slash agrarian environment, which aren't necessarily part of the industrial farming or industrial ranching scenario. Okay, so again, uh, just to get the listeners, uh, what is the difference between a Georgic and an agrarianism? Well, I, I, I like to say that agrarianism is, is between, so Georgic begins with five, hypothetically, five families living in a valley with no help from any government anywhere and they have to figure it out mm -hmm. you you live or die based on your own creativity and your own ability to figure things out that's georgics okay and then mm -hmm. over time now you start that way five years later um you've got some barns built you've got some some accumulation what we call capital right yeah accumulation of food and that kind of thing now you're more agrarian because you're now established you got those trees you went somewhere else while you you have enough food for your family to eat, but you went somewhere else and got some fruit trees and you planted those. Now they're producing, you have an established farm and established situation. That would be more of the concept of, of, of agrarianism, probably oh. in the developed Georgics, right? Um, yeah. But, but industrial farming, um, you, for, first of all, most industrial farms are monocultures, right? So yeah. the guys that farm here, they don't have 14 different things they're doing. They do one thing maybe two things. Um, and part, and, and that would be more agrarianism versus Georgics where you're, where it's polyculture, where you have, you know, 27 different species of animals and, you know, a hundred different vegetables you're growing and all these different trees and all, all this stuff works with each other. It's all, it's all part of a system. Whereas if you have just all one, you know, 500 acres of wheat only that, that was definitely, that would definitely not be considered Georgic. Okay, so I think I'm getting this. Sorry, we're, I just think it's a very important topic. Well, um, and, and I cover, there's about 30 or 40 pages of this concept that goes through from the Greeks all the way through the American experiment in my book, American, uh, in the first chapter called Georgics. Um, oh. And so you, you, you can get a much deeper idea of what that yeah. is from reading that chapter. But just to put things into perspective, when you and I were growing up, we knew farmers, and I'm sure it still applies to today, maybe not as much, but certainly when you and I were growing up, even though I grew up in the 80s and 90s, you grew up, sounds like in the 60s, uh, 70s and 80s, but nonetheless, the principle was still the same. We knew farmers that would live on their farms, grow their own food, sell it to distribution centers, food plants, whatever. 
but they would still go into town and buy meat, maybe vegetables, because they didn't grow those vegetables. They sold those vegetables. So would you consider that maybe a high? Oh, and by the way, the, yeah, the farmers grew the ones that I know knew growing up. They grew well, two or three things, uh, but a lot of those things were sold. Would you call that maybe a hybrid of an agrarianism and the city life? Uh, yeah, I, I would say it's it's emerging. Georgics, okay. Georgics would be where you were probably 95% independent. Agrarianism, ah. agrarianism would, would be, uh, you're still involved in an environment, but you have a really strong relationship with, with, with an urban environment, and maybe you're, you're 40% independent, right? Or 30% independent. Um, where industrial farming today is, uh, you have a cash crop, you're not independent in any other way, generally, you have a cash crop, and not only that, but you're living on a agricultural uh, loan that provides, uh, you know, you have to sell your crops so you can pay your loan off, but then you have to get another loan to, to survive. Um, you, you don't see that in real agrarianism uh, up until maybe the 1920s, 1930s, where we started to do this more industrial approach. So agrarianism. Yeah, like wheat subsidies. Yeah. Agrarianism kind of bridges georgics in industrial farming okay okay i think i get it now yeah all right so agrarianism you might have two or three things that you're growing on your farm georgics you probably are growing five or six seven different things fruit probably 50 50 to 100 different things yeah okay so i didn't mean to spend so much time on that i just you're good you're good um okay so the other thing that struck me is that you have your own honeybees. I guess you're, the beehive is, what, about 30 miles from you, and then they come pollinate, and then you get your honey somewhere or something to that effect. No, well, the, our hives are on site, and the bees travel maybe two or three miles. Oh, okay. Max, and then they come back to the hive. The honey is produced right in the hive by the okay. bees, and we harvest right out of our own, our own hives. Now, let's talk about something that I have a lot of questions about. The new economy. I looked at this and it didn't seem all that new. It seems like the economy that we were subject to as a society oh, back in the 1800s, maybe early to mid 1900s, where you grew everything and you owned your own business and you were out on your own. Yeah, we call it Georgics. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. So you talk about having, growing your own food, having your own orchards, if you can, certainly growing your own food, your own livestock, butchering your pigs, chickens, you want you, um, turkeys, whatever. And then you own your own business. And again, I don't want to sound ignorant, but I'm just looking at all this and thinking, I would be so busy growing my own food and butchering my own animals, taking care of my livestock. I know that ranchers go out all day just to find their livestock and bring it back home. And I'm looking at this thinking, how in the world would I do this and own my own business at the same time? Because somebody like me, I'd want to own a podcast business or a business of getting information out there to the public. How yeah. would I balance that and growing my own food? It seems like a very, very daunting task. Well, um, yeah. And, and, you know, ha having some background and having done 
So for, for example, most ranchers, um, they, they bring their livestock in closer to home in the wintertime where they can feed them if, if need be. Um, in the summertime, let them go out. And so, yeah, they might go out and have to round up their cattle, but they, they're not doing that every day. They'll do that for a few days. Um, I took my kids on a big uh, cattle roundup in Nevada a few years ago. And in two and a half days, we had, we had you know, eight or 900 head that we had gathered up and, um, and we were done for the season. So it's not like they're out every day. Uh, when you're set up properly, and, and this is where permaculture and biodynamics and all that comes in, um, if, when, when you create a system and you're, and, and you're doing this on a, on a full-time basis like we're talking about, you're going to spend per day uh, on average. Now, harvest days are different, that kind of thing. But on average, um, you're, you're going to spend an hour or two max dealing with your livestock, dealing with your with your gardens, with your greenhouses, with your orchards, you're just not going to spend that much time on it once it's established. Now setting it up, yeah, you're going to put some time in there. But once it's set up and established, chickens, for example, um, I have two daughters that live in town, they share a home, and they have chickens, and they have a big garden, and they do all this stuff. And they just don't put more, maybe an hour a day, Kevin, maybe. Oh, it's just, okay. It's just not that involved. Um, nature pretty much takes care of itself. Now, I, I guess you could really be involved if you want to, but there's just no need for it. Um, and they produce so much food, those two girls, uh, that, you know, they're giving it away. I tell them to sell it, but they're, they're giving it away um, to every, every uh, guy, every person they can come into uh, that, that they can find to take the stuff off their hands. So um, it's just not that hard when you're set up properly, which can take some time, uh, once it's set up, it pretty much is self, self, uh, you know, regulating. Interesting. Now, would you just given what you said about it can take two days to find your livestock Would that person might, might want to hire somebody to go find livestock if they were busy with their business or whatever. Sure. Sure. That that's where, um, now depend on how you do your business. Um, you know, most entrepreneurs that I know that once the, again, starting a business is one thing, but once it's up and running, especially if you have a few employees, uh, you know, you really have a lot more free time than if you're a 40, 50 hour a week employee somewhere. Um, but yeah, often in these communities where you have people who are doing this at a much higher rate than, than other places, uh, you, you kind of form cooperatives. For example, if, if, if you're, you know, doing some kind of harvesting and you all have some version of this, you might go together in a cooperative approach and buy that, that, that machine once and then everybody shares it and everybody helps each other harvest. Um, I remember when I was a kid living on this uh, church welfare farm, uh, when we would go harvest hay or whatever, we'd have a bunch of people come in and help us for a day. And, and the women would be making a whole bunch of food for us and the guys are out doing all the hard sweaty stuff. And then we'd have a, we'd have a little hoedown and have all this food. And it was a celebration while we were getting all this work done. Yeah, like a happened. harvest dinner. Yeah. But it only happened once or twice a year. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't like an everyday thing. Yeah. Okay. And you also encourage people to buy land, get your house set up as soon as possible, even if it's temporary housing. Let me just clarify something. And I think you did a good job clarifying this on your website. This is not 
where you buy a tiny home. I guess you could, but it's not necessarily something you buy one of those tiny homes and put it on a lot and you're just completely off the grid. Obviously, this is something where you build the house like we talked about, the straw bale house. One thing I want to get to, though, is you talked about not paying a mortgage to the bank. That, to me, sounds unrealistic because land is so expensive now. Uh, everybody I know has a bank loan to pay off their house. I don't know anyone who's just bought in their house flat right, unless you're a billionaire or something. You, you live in Montana. I could take you to at least 20 locations in Montana right now where you can buy land for $1,000 or less an acre. Really? Yep. Now, it's not in towns. This is all going to be out in county areas. Um, but I, I can show you in Idaho. I can show you in Utah. I can show you in Missouri. There's lots of land, but it's undeveloped land, right? It's, it, may, it has limited access sometimes. Um, it doesn't have all the infrastructure that you and I are used to for a city lot. I can buy a quarter acre lot here in Monticello, little tiny Monticello, and it's going to run me 20 to 50 grand per quarter acre, but I already have roads to it. I already have uh, a building on it probably, or say it's a vacant lot. I already have uh, electricity and water and sewer and roads and all these things are already built in. That's why that lot costs so much. You go out in an area and uh, that doesn't have all those things. There's a dirt road run out there, which is, we have places like that just out here, 10 miles from Monticello or less. And acreage is much cheaper out there than, than in, in, you know, inside the city limits. So it all depends on what you're looking for. Um, you know, you, what we're suggesting with the new economy, yeah, likely is not going to happen. Now, if you inherited 10 acres in the middle of Salt Lake City, we'll say, um, yeah, you could pull that off or, you know, middle of Butte or something. Um, oh, yeah. You could still do what we're talking about. Uh, maybe, maybe the city lets you go off grid 100%. Maybe they make you go grid tie. Again, um, you know, we're telling students to find land places where they have no building codes or very little. Caldwell County, Missouri has no building codes. Um, Bonners Ferry area, I think it's called, um, I can't remember the county. Oh, in Orfino? Um, Orfino, Idaho, and the Camp Boundary County is what you're talking about? I, I don't, it's really, it's right on the Canadian border. Yeah, Boundary but, County. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they have no building codes up there. Um, there's lots of places have very. By the way, minimal. just for the record, that's in Idaho. Carry on up in northern yes. Idaho. Right, right, and um, and so you just have to look for land in those areas. This is probably going to be more rural. Now, I mentioned in the book that I'm writing right now um, that it doesn't mean you can't do this in an urban environment, but you are limited. Um, you're limited by city regulation. You're limited by uh, you know just mass population you're limited in a lot of different ways but it's still doable there are plenty of people who grow all the food they eat or you know 80 percent of the food there's a guy in california he's on a tenth of an acre and he produces all the food for his family to eat and they sell 20 or to forty thousand dollars a year of produce and eggs and meat and everything else on a tenth of an acre so you can do that i i per, uh, personally that I would die living there because I don't like big population areas. He's right. I mean, he's right off a freeway, um, but it can be done um, if that's, if that's the environment you want to live in. 
Now, um, just to put things into perspective, we're going to get a little uh, personal with the geography here. So bear with me, folks. I'll try and explain it the best I can. I have a friend, and I think you know him too. I don't want to mention his name because I didn't have permission to get his name out there, but he's been trying to buy land for several years, and he keeps complaining to me how expensive it is. It's, I guess he wants to buy it in the Uintas or something, Yeah. and he says that he can't. So you could come back to my friend and say, why don't you buy in rural whatever? What do you say to that? Because he's he just keeps talking about the Uintas and how he wants to get land over there and how expensive it is and how he can't do it. Well, yeah. So one of the things that, that we talk to our students about is getting started. And, and the idea of getting started with no debt when you're young is you have you have a lot of options. For example, the very first piece of land that I bought in Utah. Now I had I had owned a bunch of other stuff in other places, but I was probably 30. And the very first piece of land I bought in the state of Utah, it was 10 acres. And I bought it with not one penny. It was, I, I bought it at 10, uh, at a thousand dollars an acre. And I did sweat equity. I worked off that land at $400 a month. I worked for somebody for the value of $400 worth. They didn't give me any cash and I didn't pay them anything for the land. At the end of two and a half years, I traded or that they gave me a deed for this piece of property. I turned around and sold it for $75,000. And, um, but I, I got the entire piece and a deed in my name without one penny transferring. Almost from sounds me. like the homesteading sure. act. It, 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 I'm just saying there's plenty of ways to do it. For example, yeah. you could find somebody who has a piece of land that you want to buy. And if they're willing to do this, and if you explain to them these options, sometimes they are willing to do it let the owner carry so you don't have to get a, a loan. Now that still is a that still is you know in the realm of a loan but you're much safer in my opinion working with someone who who you know that you can feel like you trust who believes in what you're doing and let them carry the loan you make payments to them than going through a bank that does not know you they don't care they have their criteria they follow and that's all there is to it. Now um, I have to ask you this because it's going to come up. We know how our governments are, state and federal. Are you worried about getting shut down by the federal government? Are you worried about your students trying to buy land, the government shutting them down? I, I have to bring this up because it's happened over and over and over again. Uh, you know, there's, there's always a risk. We, we live where we live. You know, we live in the country we, we live in. All I can tell you is that, that um, when you're doing these things, you're doing them quietly. You're not making a big fuss. You're not trying to, to you know, you, you go ask 100 people if they've heard of Monticello College and 99 are, are going to say they've never heard of it, right? When, That's when you're true. That far, when you're that far under the radar, um, and we never will be a bit bigger than that because our plan is to be, what we want is we want 100 students on this campus and then 20 other campuses like this all over the country with 100 students. When you're doing something of that that nature, um, you just don't get recognized very easily. Okay, interesting. Well, is there anything else that you want to go over? I uh, Anything that I didn't cover or anything to that effect? Um, no, just other than, you know, our, our website is monticellocollege.org.org. Um, so monticellocollege.org. And um, we take visitors all the time. Uh, we're open to visitors. Uh, we prefer you let us know when you're coming, but we have people who show up all the time uh, unannounced and, and uh, 
Um, the only problem is that if we're teaching classes or whatever, we, you know, we, we can't talk to you immediately until the class is over, but, um, but we do, uh, if you give us any kind of heads up at all, I'll have myself or a student give you a tour of the campus. We'll answer any questions. You can talk to students. You can sit in on classes with us. If you give us enough notice, we'll give you a reading assignment. You can prep and come and participate knowledgeably in that particular class. Um, I do might do that. Stuff. Yeah, no, it's fun. Um, oh. you, you know, you've, you've already done that. The, it's important to know from your perspective, Kevin, is basically Monticello College is a continuation of what Oliver DeMille and I were doing at George with. Um, things went south on that. There were some internal issues. And when I started this, everybody who helped me get going on this said, look at all you're doing is continuing on. So we took the original curriculum that, that Oliver had created back in 1993 and um, 94, and we've modified it to our situation here, but we've take, we've just continued on what we were doing there and we've added in the manual arts, we've added in Trek, uh, we've added in, you know, th these different kinds of things. But um, in, in fact, you know, I mentioned that that one of the problems that, that, that caused an issue with George with was the fact that we were starting a second campus. Well, we're right smack dab in the middle of the very land that we had secured back in 2007. So I'm in the same original spot. We're doing the same kinds of things that we had intended all along. I just, uh, I'm, I'm not very creative. I just get with something and I stick with it. So um, that's what we're doing here now. Well, let me tie this back. Remember the scenario that I explained earlier, this whole, the whole conversation is obviously about provide uh, lifestyle prepping, whatever you want to call it, lifestyle. But the whole premises, that whole scenario I gave about me sitting into a class and saying, well, sometimes the government has a responsibility to intervene. The whole idea, and you mentioned this on your website, I'm just going to paraphrase it all. The idea of this education is to provide for yourself, speak for yourself, be well-educated in literature, be able to read, write, defend yourself without an attorney, although I think that's too idealistic, but that's on the website. Be able to defend yourself in the House of Legislature so that when these arguments come up, whether you're for or against the government intervening with Target or whoever, and that's an issue that I personally have opinions about. We're not going to go there right now. But uh, these issues come up this whole education that you're providing the students will help you defend yourself on issues like this, correct? And life skills issues as well. Yeah, yes, our, our biggest primary concern is that we have a, a massively in debt economic system to the tune of about $140 trillion. Oh yeah. And, and, so if you if you follow the normal path that the average person has in America going to college for the last 80 years, last 100 years, you get a degree, you go work for somebody else, and you're part of that economic system. You get a mortgage right away, you get a car payment right away, uh, uh, you're, you're, you have this debt on you, and in the last 30, 40 years, you're able to get this massive debt on your shoulders, so you're 22 years old. Uh, you know, 25 years old, you get married, you know, get kids, get a house, and you just, you're dying. You have all this debt, and you carry this till you're 65 or 70, 
and then uh, you don't have it all paid off yet. You're, you're living on social security, which is a pittance. And um, you, you, you go to your grave unfulfilled and you pass the debt on that you did not pay off onto the next generation. And what we're saying is sacrifice some standard of living now for even up to 10 years. Put yourself in a position where you have no debt. You own a piece of land free and clear. You own your house that you built with your own hands free and clear. Um, and by the time you hit 35, 40 years old, you have a home free and clear. You have land free and clear. You have a lifestyle that is very independent. You have a business that provides three to five times more than what your needs are per uh, month. And you are now an asset to your community and you pass on a huge asset to your children. That's, oh, go ahead. That, that's what we're about. That, that is the primary purpose of this. And in the process of doing all this, you have this great liberal arts education. You can engage civically. You can engage financially. You can engage morally. You can engage religiously. You can engage academically. And, and, and you're a stable force in your community. What is the age range of your students right now? Um, 18 to 29. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah, that's, do you see any potentials for real people who are in your college right now, let's say 10, 20 years to become big names, whether it's in the Patriot movement or big names throughout the holes, you know, for the masses, do you see any potential there? Uh, sure. There's always potential. Uh, I, that, that's not a goal that we have necessarily, but you know, when you have people in a community who have no debt, who are independent, who speak their mind, who engage, who try to help their fellow man, you're going to get noticed. And um, so, yeah, from that perspective, yeah, we, we hope all of our students do that. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I felt very edified when looking at your website. I found it very uplifting. And I think you will too. Again, the website is MonticelloCollege.org. What is your book that you wrote, by the way, that you've alluded to? It's called, and you can get it on the website. It's called American, Killing the American Dream. Um, okay. Yep. Anything else you want to add? Uh, no, we just, uh, Monticello College is, is how colleges were two or 300 years ago in this country, you know, when, when we, we first started and uh, we've kind of morphed out of that into a very different thing these days, but um, we welcome visitors, come check us out anytime, come check our website out, uh, give me a call, email, whatever. We're very open to have people come here. It is, it is a drive We're we're uh, remote on purpose so we can create this environment for these kids to, to unplug and see that there's life after social media. I'd like to come out and uh, eat with you folks and those types of things. I might even do, I'd like to do the 26 day thing. That would be very intriguing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about it. All right. Well, thank you very much folks. And I will talk to you all later. Thank you for listening to the canning plus seven podcast. If you have a recommendation or suggestion, email Kevin Williams at canning plus seven at protonmail.com. Remember, when emailing him, the plus is spelled out instead of the plus sign. You can also check him out at Facebook at Canning Plus 7. That's Canning Plus 7 with the plus symbol instead of the word plus on the Canning Plus 7 Facebook page.